Welcome to Curious and Quirky. We believe curious leaders change the world. Curious and Quirky is a LinkedIn live event with course leaders from Caltech Executive Education. This is a fast-paced, five-minute-per-speaker, oh yeah, take on what's hot in marketing, innovation, transformation, future of work, platform strategy, design, and agility. Brought to you by the course leaders from Caltech Executive Education. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, friends. Wherever you're joining us this month, uh, welcome to Curious and Quirky. My name is Tim Boyd, your host for today's session. And as with all of our sessions, we have an excellent lineup of some of the most intriguing and insightful topics in the world of business for your consideration. Buckle up as we embark on this month's session with the brilliant minds from Caltech Executive Education. And with that, I'd like to introduce you to one of the most insightful marketing experts in the field today, who has a passion for helping companies unlock their potential by evolving strategic marketing skills and guiding global managers with proven frameworks and tools while infusing her enthusiasm into everything she does. Ladies and gentlemen, grab your backstage pass as she speaks about the global phenomenon known as Taylor Swift. Wow. Thank you very much, Tim. Um, My curious and quirky topic, as Tim said, is about Taylor Swift. And really, it's amazing the way that she is teaching all of us how to create intellectual property or IP and then manage relationships in business. So she continues to change the game in her favor by taking very non-traditional approaches. So one powerful example is uh, she's taking back ownership and control of the rights to her first six albums that she originally had uh, recorded and released back in 2006 to 2017. So this all came about when the entertainment tycoon, Scooter Braun, (laughs) purchased Big Machine Records. That's the company that uh, has the rights to Taylor's original album, Masters. But she found a loophole and now is in the midst of re-recording each of those six albums. So why would she do this? It's expensive, it's time-consuming, and it takes her away from really creating new music. But she wrote in Tumblr, she said, Scooter has stripped me of my life's work. I wasn't given an opportunity to buy. Essentially, my music legacy is about to lie in the hands of someone who tried to dismantle it. So I think it's a lot more than money here. (laughs) Her plan is to go, uh, his plan is going so well that with her recent re-recorded 1989 album, it just debuted on the top Billboard charts. So, and this is like number 13 for her. (laughs) There are claims that uh, the new recording is actually sounds better than the old ones as well. Another example of her taking a very non-traditional approach is that she repurposed her famous uh, concert, The Eras Tour, by creating a movie which she recorded during six live performances in Los Angeles recently in August. And the whole movie takes place on stage. There's no backstage or behind the scenes footage. It's very straightforward, but not many musicians have been able to pull this off well. 
So with this movie, she gives Swifties, her fans, of course, more opportunities to enjoy her entertainment. So if people, especially the younger kids, couldn't attend her concert, this is a PG rated movie and it's a way to reach them and of course, gain more revenue. <laughs> and for people who attended the concert, this is a way that they can relive it as many times as they want, probably a lot more affordably. So according to the New York Times, this movie was released October 13th. Now think about that. That's only two months that she took between the recording of it and to launch it. And it cost $15 million for, for them to develop it. And it surpassed $150 million in the first two weeks. And it's already gone past $200 million now. So for the rights to this movie, Taylor cut out uh, the studio and all their fees so that she negotiated directly with AMC and was able to get an unheard of amount of 57%. So all those proceeds go to her. Now the tickets cost $19.89 in honor of her birth year. And then for the younger uh, ones and older, it's uh, $13.13. .13. So very, even, even the pricing is cool. And then the film is, is obviously very lucrative for the theaters. And she negotiated cell phone policies, especially uh, li licensed popcorn tubs, friendship making bracelets, and then even some uh, custom drinks. And adding to this unique experience, she got the film to only run Thursdays through Sundays. So her timing was perfect. The movie was released during the actor's strike when six major movies had to be postponed. So she filled AMC's need to have something to feature, and it probably helped that negotiation along with it too. So adding to her profit, there was very little uh, marketing support. Uh, instead, of course, what Taylor did was she communicated directly with her 350 million uh, social media followers. So I'm um, just remarkable. So what does all this mean for your business? The first thing is, do you have intellectual property that you can repurpose? Some of our medical uh, device companies and the industrial type companies, uh, they're reusing some of the uh, existing sales training videos and they're creating shorter messages and splicing them up and sending them out to you know their their customers. The second thing is many of our clients uh, work through distributors. So if this is similar to your model, um, can you reevaluate the value that uh, you and your customers are getting from those distributors? And instead, perhaps you can you know is there a different type or a different level of support that they can provide to you? Or maybe is there opportunities for you to go direct and cut out the middleman or middlewoman? The third thing is, if your customers love your, your products and services, is there an opportunity for you to expand your offering? Provide them with more. So for example, if you provide products, you can provide consulting services. And conversely, if you're in the service industry, like, like we are, you could provide products such as uh, we've developed online training programs and of course, um, our accidental marketer books. So in conclusion, I hope that you figure out some non-traditional ways to grow your business. And as Taylor states in one of her songs, I could build a castle out of all the bricks that they threw at me. Good luck. And now I have the honor of introducing Brian Mattimore. He is our innovation guru, and he's going to talk with us about AI. Thanks, Brian. Yeah, thank you, Mary. So this is a preview of a couple of Curious and Quirky sessions to come where we'll all be focused on AI, but today Alan and I will be focused on it. So I want to talk about the, the largest quantitative study that has been done to date about the productivity around AI. And this was a joint study between Harvard Business School and Boston Consulting Group, BCG. And so the title, it, it just published uh, at the end of September, the uh, case study title 
subtitle, I'll read it, is Navigating the Jagged Technological Frontier, Field Experimental Evidence of the Effects of AI on Knowledge Worker Productivity and Quality. Uh, That's a snappy title, right? But it it gets at the fact that there's sort of pluses and minuses with AI. And if you don't want to go through the 54-page study as I did, on the BCG, Boston Consulting Group site, there's an article, How People Can Create and Destroy Value with Generative AI, that summarizes a lot of the key learnings from that study, and it's great. So what was the study? It was 758 consultants at BCG participated in this study, and they had 18, quote, realistic consulting tasks. So what was the headline in terms of the, the results, the that AI worked very well uh, on certain kinds of tasks. And I'll talk about what those are in a second, but they completed 12% more tasks, did them 25% quicker. And the most startling finding of all that there was 40% higher quality in terms of the results, right? So, and by the way, the quality, you know, was done in a typical, you know, academic and, and rigorous way. Quality was judged both, and the results were blind, you know, the, the, the assessors didn't know who, whether it was people or chat, GPT, whatever uh, group. And so they were studied by BCG senior consultants and also Harvard Business School students with experience in grading papers. So the quality is defensible in terms of their findings. But let's dig deeper on the quality specifically. They had two kinds of tasks, creative product innovation tasks, And the project they worked on was creating new products for a footwear company. 10 new products, steps to launch it, how you would segment the market, a tagline you might create for these products, and also a press release. That was one class of challenges they worked on. The second class was on business problem solving. So this is sort of the typical case study of a business school. And in this case, there was a, quote, right answer. Okay, so this is what they discovered is that the it's almost counterintuitive that the generative AI, this was chat GPT-4, by the way, did dramatically great in the creative product innovation, but had a lot of shortcomings in the analytical side of it. And just a side note about the analytical side of it, you know, 85% of these consultants who took it probably could have gotten the right answer according to their study, but but over 19% of them didn't go with the right answer in part because ChatGPT had such a convincing argument and rationale for why they had picked the wrong answer, if you will, which is really scary, right? But in terms of the creative product innovation, the key finding, in my opinion, was the generative AI is a powerful leveler of performance. So what does that mean? That means that those who were assessed at a much lower level of performance were able to dramatically increase their their results and their performance and their quality. And they nearly matched those who were studied to have or assessed to have much higher baseline proficiency. So this has huge implications, right, for training uh, new employees, attracting new employees, that they can be brought up to speed potentially very quickly using chat GPT, AI, generative AI as a vehicle. And the notion of a total innovation enterprise, which we've been trying to promote for 20 years now of uh, having employees at all levels and in all functions be creative could be helped by this. The other thing that, and so you say, are we out of a job? <laughs> you know, those of us who are innovation consultants or consultants in general. The downside or the challenging part of this was the generative AI, yes, it will boost individual creativity and productivity, but it falls down in terms of collective creativity. And so there was a, you know, the, what they found is that there's sort of a collectively repetitive uh, results coming from using uh, ChatGPT. Anybody who's done that, I think has a sense that this is true. And what they found is that there was a 40% 
lower, quote, diversity of ideas from the control group that did not use chat GPT. So the net net of this is that we need to do both. This is not an either or, this is an and. We need to both uh, use ChatGPT to trigger ideas, which I did earlier this week with 35 German manufacturing executives, but I also use conventional or traditional ideation processes without ChatGPT to make sure we, we got that diversity. So that's what I wanted to share. We're, we're all still going to be, be working. We're all needed. The humans are, are needed in this space. But one thing, one thing that I thought was really, really interesting was that 70% percent of the respondents were fearful, these of the BCG respondents were fearful that uh, ChatGPT or generative AI could lessen their creative abilities because uh, they would just get used to it and not uh, think as deeply as they thought. And, and we can all see this. Nobody can remember telephone numbers, right? But the, the point is here, we, it's an and, we want to do both. And uh, our, our productivity and quality gains will be dramatic if we, if we focus on the end here. All right, so I'm going to turn this over now to our transformation uh, guru, who I hope is, you know, feels good about the results of this study because she is in a decidedly human endeavor. So our, cha- our transformation guru, Ginny, you're up. Thank you, Brian. So uh, we are heading into the holidays. We're heading into Thanksgiving. So I thought it was only appropriate that I, I choose a topic that's uh, based on food. And this particular uh, food product that I'm going to talk about today is the Twinkie. And the, and the reason why, there was a, a recent article in the Wall Street Journal that, that caught my attention. And the headline reads, Why the Twinkie is Now Worth Billions. And, and what makes this headline even more curious is that 10 years ago, Twinkies disappeared when Hostess Brands, the maker of this golden cream-filled sponge cake, when Hostess Brands declared bankruptcy for the second time in a decade. And this this was 10 years ago. So what happened next was a, a very dramatic comeback. Two investment firms rescued the snack cake by paying $410 million for Hostess Brands which kicked off a decade of fixes and a search for the next Twinkie, all of which culminated in a recent deal. And this deal happened in September. And the deal was to sell Hostess to J.M. Smuckers for $4.6 billion. So I just kind of want to repeat that. So the two investment firms purchased Hostess brands for $410 million and recently sold it for $4.6 billion. So, so that's quite a, a compelling story here. So, so let's kind of take a look at the story and, and what's the so what about this? You know, let's talk about the rise and fall and the rise again of this beloved product. So if we kind of look at this through the lens of business transformation, let's let's look at the model of, of business transformation. And this is this is the model I teach in, in my uh, change transformation course. And, and there's some very basic questions to ask, you know, embarking on business change and, and big transformation. And, and really the questions are, are pretty basic, but but are, are really you know compelling to kind of go through them step by step. So the first question and change transformation is why change? What's the reason for the change? Next question, what about the current state is compelling us to move on? Next question, what about the future state? 
that attracts us? What are we looking to do in the future? What do we see in the future? What's the vision for the future? What will the future look like? And what will we do different in that future state? So, so let's kind of go back in time and imagine what the, the initial company, the one that declared bankruptcy twice, and what the what that leadership team, how they might have answered those questions. And oh, by the way, where where this version was headed was to closing the factories and beginning liquidation proceedings. So how might they have answered those change questions? So why change? Well, Hostess is suffering as consumers are becoming more health conscious. So they didn't really see a future for for this kind of snack food because they were seeing the, the consumers as going in a different direction. What about the current state that compels us to move on? Well, there was definitely poor financial performance. And again, in the current state, they felt that the consumer wanted healthy snacks. And then as they thought about perhaps what the future would look like, they really felt that the company was totally going to go out of business. So this was that, that initial leadership team. The answers to these questions led to a change journey that wasn't about taking Hostess and Twinkies into the future. The way they answered the questions, it was about leaving Hostess and Twinkies behind. So because of this, for eight months, Twinkies could not be found in supermarkets. And you can imagine what happened. The shoppers, but loving this product, they were filling their carts because they thought they'd never be able to buy it again. And actually, they were bidding wars on eBay for Twinkies because people were panicked that they'd never have them again. And an interesting thing happened. Two private equity firms, as I mentioned before, teamed up with a $410 million offer. And they didn't have a challenge from any other bidder. But these two firms saw something in the Twinkie that no one did. So, so let's kind of figure out what they may have asked, you know, when they were asking these change questions. So why change? Well, as, as it says in the article, there has rarely been a bad time to bet on the American sweet tooth. It's, it's here to stay. <laughs> and, and what about the future that attracts us? Well, you know, the hostess brands have been resilient. And again, America's appetite for indulgent treats is here to stay, not going away. So what could the future look like? Well, for the company, and this is what ended up happening, a leaner workforce, changes to processes, changes to distribution, and changes actually to ingredients. And one of those changes to the ingredients was putting some ingredients in which would prolong the shelf life of the Twinkie, which then helped uh, bring down cost of distribution. So as we as we look currently to the, the current team of Hostess executives, this is how they, they see uh, the consumer right now. They, they say that the consumer is taking a balance sheet approach to snacking. Choosing healthy snacks, yes, but sometimes treating themselves to sweets at other times. And they believe this trend is, is going to last. And then, then there's some statistics about the snackification of American diets, where almost half of the U.S. consumers are eating three or more snacks a day. And this is up 8% in the past two years. 
And, um, you know, the food executives are saying that this is also something that has been fueled by the pandemic. So this is kind of a holdover from the pandemic where the demand for cakes and candies and snacks increased. And and it happened during the pandemic and it's still happening. So when we think about this, this kind of story and, you know, two different ways of looking at the future of the brand and of the product, you know, there are very two different ways of looking at this and very two different ways of answering the question, why change? So in the first case, in the case where we their company was heading into double bankruptcy, uh, the change in the decision to exit the business was driven by, you know, certainly poor financial performance, of course, but also misreading the consumer, misreading the customer that the customer was only interested in, you know, a healthy diet. When we look at the second way that 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 uh, question was answered, why change? When we look at perhaps what these two private equity firms were thinking about, they were they were looking at a future state with the customer at the center of it and thinking about the needs of the customer. And in this case, where the need for sweets can coexist with the diet, with the desire for a healthy diet. And it certainly has uh, made them a lot of money currently thinking about the product this way and, and certainly thinking about the, the consumer. So, so this is a kind of a tale of, of two different perspectives where thinking about the change where it was customer-centered was really the successful answer. So customer-centered change, how sweet it is. And with that, I'm going to hand off to our supply chain guru, Alan Dunn, who's going to also talk about AI. Thank you, Jenny. That's uh, really appreciated uh, your presentation. You know, having done more than 50 operational due diligence projects in the food sector alone for uh, private equity companies and one of our big lines of clients, I have to tell you this. There's nothing more profitable than stuff that gets sold in truck stops. And so I, truck stop food has the highest margins I've ever seen. If you can afford to buy one of those companies, you should own it. That said, let's talk about artificial intelligence. I uh, have been uh, a little bit mesmerized by what's going on in the uh, AI industry, uh, the software providers, the tool providers, uh, the educators. And I found, even as a 69-year-old millennial, I found that I was a bit confused about the real value and the real power of this. And a lot of it was because I, I failed to really understand initially the, the structure of AI and these, and these software sort of tools. Spent some time studying this, went to a wonderful two-day symposium. It was at Stanford and there was a lot of other supply chains. It was specifically around AI and supply chain. And that helped me out quite a bit. And I've come to some conclusions based on the Council of Supply Chain Management Professionals, Association of Supply Chain Management, the Institute of Supply Management, and the Stanford scholars. And here it is. So you have to break AI down. If you're a supply chain executive, you have to break AI down into the two categories of AI. One I'm going to call traditional AI, which is very analysis-centric, very analytic-centric. It's able to manage substantially more uh, variables in any sort of decision process than, than humans can do in, a, in the same period of time. And so if you look at supply chain, we're oftentimes working on optimization. So imagine you're a factory that makes 100 products 
you uh, those hundred products you're buying have uh, fifteen thousand parts or items in them, and those come from seventeen hundred vendors or suppliers uh, who have another three thousand suppliers below them, and maybe fifteen twenty thousand suppliers before them below them, and then you sell them off through distribution channels, maybe to through distributors, and ultimately to uh, customers and then to consumers. And so this very broad supply chain process of buy. Uh, make, distribute, uh, sell, and then maybe even return like Amazon becomes very, very, very complex. There's so many variables, it's virtually impossible to manage those using traditional systems. Now, traditional ERP sort of systems have lots of analytic tools in them. Those analytic tools are all driven by parameters. The nice thing about traditional AI, it is the super analysis app. And that's the best way to look at it. It can do optimization analytics faster than anybody else, than any human being can do. It can do them better than most human beings can do them. And uh, and what's not to like about that? But there's an additional level of AI, and that's the generative AI. This is the this is what I call the super creative app. And generative AI in supply chain has enormous benefits. And here's the reason why. Ultimately, it not only can look at the same variables that traditional AI looks at, but it also looks at disparate variables. That is variables from other industries that you would never think apply to your industry. And that's really the result of access to information, aka the internet, and also the speed of computing and processing and the amount of uh, data storage and the amount of RAM in, in computers. It really takes a lot of that. to make, So those were the prerequisites to make generative AI really workable at the at the supply chain uh, professionals level. So generative AI, what really is interesting about it in the supply chain world is it not only, if you're trying to do an optimization study, it not only looks at the variables that you would know, but it looks for the variables you don't know. It casts about and it tries to find, and effectively what it does, and this is the most important point I can make, is that it rethinks your hypothesis, rethinks your entire analytic hypothesis. And then it, and what it can do is from that, it can make creative recommendations. So we witnessed, in one of my clients, we witnessed uh, contracts, supply chain contracts or supply contracts with critical suppliers, run them through a generative AI and they cast about and they develop unique terms and conditions for not only that supplier, but for the the ecosystem that that supplier operates within. And these are these are things that people don't traditionally think about because people in supply chain, who are, by the way, great problem solvers and great planners, that's a lot of what supply chain does, they don't think about the fact that maybe some other industry is doing something that can be used in their particular environment. And so that ability to, to reinvent the hypothesis, rerun the analytics, pull in disparate information from other industries and even non-industries, for example, because it, it, because it has access to lots of information that the average supply chain professional wouldn't have, gives these, regenerative gives the ability to not just do the analysis, but to test it against multiple scenarios. In other words, one of the biggest benefits of AI in the supply chain world is the ability to manage the risks not just the performance of suppliers or networks of factories or distribution centers, but to assess the risks, not overall, but at that moment in time. And that's really important. If you take a look at, I have clients who were buying components uh, from Israel just uh, six weeks ago, and they're, they can't get them out of Israel today. Point is, is that AI, and when we went back and we used an engine and looked back at that, it would have predicted that easily four to five months in advance. 
And so that's the value of AI in the supply chain world. Thanks to Stanford and the other professional associations really, really invest, certainly my thinking and my interest in seeing this uh, this technology moving forward in the supply chain. So with that, um, my job now is to turn this over to uh, Tim to wrap it up. Thanks, Alan. And when we think about the generative AI, it's really interesting in the concept of being applicable to pretty much everything. And I always think about how you can leverage that in the form of mentoring, and maybe that'll be a bridge to next month's conversation as we leverage AI for various different ways than people might have thought about before. I recently hosted a workshop uh, at an aerospace company on high-impact mentoring. Uh, And what was fascinating to me was that in a conference full of talks, high-profile speakers, all about technology and strategy, my room was still packed. I feel like people are hungry on how to connect with each other, how to build strong mentoring partnerships with people in their organizations. And and that's a really, really critical thing for today's workplace. You know, companies are still always looking for new ways to retain talent. Uh, They're always looking for a way to one-up their competitors and really to stand out in an ever-increasing competitive field. However, they don't really have to look very far when you think about it. People are always looking for the next best thing. How can we make our programs better? You know, when really what is tried and true is already right in front of them and the fundamental frameworks are already there. You know, much like we have, you know, recycled movies with different plots and different themes, we use the same uh, types of things in the business world. And mentoring is really a fundamental concept of any business strategy that's looking to retain and grow talent. Now, how does this really help my company, you might ask? Well, numerous studies from the Great Places to Work Institute and elsewhere have found that companies with high trust cultures and those that actually mentor have greater financial success than those who don't. Uh, Some other statistics from some of those studies in the workplace, millennials, uh, whether you're a 69-year-old millennial, as Alan pointed out, or a younger millennial, millennials are 22 times more likely to work for companies with a high trust culture and one that I think aligns with a strong mentorship partnership as well. People at those types of companies also experience 74% less stress as a whole. How would you like to go to work and not be stressed out all the time? That would what a concept. Uh, and companies with high uh, trust workplaces also um, perform nearly two times better than the general market in terms of traditional earnings. So there's significant benefit by doing things the right way. Now, not everyone has a mentor- mentorship program for the most part. Uh, some are very informal. Some are much more formal. I've helped small companies build you know, great mentorship programs. But at the same time, I still feel like sometimes people are doing things the wrong way. And I think there's three major ways that I'll offer that I think people are doing mentorship the wrong way when it comes to their established programs. Number one, they don't mix up engagements. When you start having a conversation with your mentee, uh, it's typically you sit down, you have a conversation, whether it's a biweekly conversation or a monthly conversation, but that's all you do. You only talk, you don't actually engage in other types of activities. There's so many different ways to engage. And I have uh, spent the last decade or so pulling together a tremendous uh, amount of data and details and activities that I work with with my mentees in order to engage them very differently. Because even month to month, things are dynamically changing in their life and their uh, professional engagements. And so we have to adapt as we go along the way. You know, it's to me, it's like having a toddler, right? They don't know exactly what they don't know. So you have to expose them to new things and you can engage in so many different ways and they're going to learn, they're going to grow, and they're likely going to be happy doing that as well. Um, number two is when you start the conversation, you automatically assume that you're going to stay level set and you're going to continuously increase their skill set over time. But in my experience, what I like to do is you start at a certain level, 
but you do a deep dive and level set and you break them down all the way back down to the bare bones of the fundamentals and you really get to the point of who you are as a person, what drives you, what motivates you, and that goes down to the core set of curriculum and the details of the very introspective conversations that a lot of us, frankly, are too scared to have sometimes. And I think that's the value of a strong mentorship and strong partnership that says, we're going to go down to the bare bones and the, and the foundational layer of who you are as a person. And only then, once we set that and understand truly that, we can really build you up up to Mount Everest as opposed to maybe going up to Mount Baldy, you know, which is a much smaller mountain in terms of time. So I think that's a really important aspect that I think people tend to get wrong. And lastly, they also don't offer them experiential-based mentorship, which in my experience really drives home the value and the impact uh, much more effectively. You know, I'm talking about going to networking events with you, going to, um, you know, helping them develop material and side saddling or co-presenting at a conference with you, helping them grow by stepping um, outside their comfort zones. Uh, and recently, I just took my three of my mentees on a tour of a completely different campus. Uh, my company's fairly large. And so we went and toured a very different campus to understand the different portfolio that they have, the different types of uh, products that they develop and get to meet with the various leaders at that company or that part of the company, which to be fair, has a completely different culture than where we all work today. And so I think those specific examples and, and opportunities are extremely valuable and really what I think can make such a big difference in the world simply by showing that you care to go above and beyond the traditional, let's sit down once a month, let's have lunch and let's have a conversation. You know, when you think about mentoring, think back to a time when someone uh, stepped in and took a chance on you and how much that changed the trajectory of your life or even your career. And that's the feeling we want to instill in all of our mentees within our businesses. And only then, you know, if you want to make strides in your business and shake things up, start changing the way you actually mentor and you'll see the differences almost immediately. And with that, uh, I'd like to invite all the speakers back into the fold for a follow-on discussion. I think we do have time for a couple questions, um, and then we'll wrap up. Hey, Tim, I just want to reinforce what you said. Uh, you know, when we did an action learning program and we discovered, you know, we solicited uh, real-world challenges, the number one challenge was recruiting and retention among these 40 executives. That's, that's one. You know, they could have they put in anything and they put in recruiting and retention. And then the other comment I would make is in some of our work, we've, we've discovered that, you know, when people use visual techniques, projective techniques, whether it's collaging or magazine rip and wrap or whatever, you can get at some very deep insights that you can't get at through through language. And I know you were alluding to that as you worked through this process of getting into real insights about what motivates people, which is especially true for millennials. I wanted to comment on um, Alan. It's funny, Alan and Brian did a really nice job of complimenting each other. So I learned a lot about AI already here today. Um, but Alan, when you said, uh, you know, they use other um, industries for ideas, I just, you know, that really stuck with me. And, you know, how is, are there some prompts that you would recommend that even help companies do that better as they're using AI for that? Yeah, there, there are. And we actually did some of that. So, for example, we have a client that needs on a food product, they need to get uh, access to information to be, able, to be able to say exactly what supplier the, the material came from what supplier they got their material from and what field it was grown in and what uh, pesticides or, or organic uh, additions were in that field. And turns out that that multi-level sort of quality analysis for them, that they couldn't find anybody in the food industry that had that, you know, Microsoft's got a big project, so does Google and IBM as well. But what they found is just, and Tim, you'll appreciate this, it's just commonplace 
in the aerospace and defense industry. And it's commonplace in the pharmaceutical industry. And so, but much better actually in uh, A&D than it is in pharmaceuticals, which may not be good news for all of us, but but the A&D folks have really spent an enormous amount of time having that, building those capabilities of transparency through all levels in the supply chain. So there was the disparate information, something done in another industry that they in their industry didn't have access to until all of a sudden they had some tools that could look across industries easily without, you know, the cadre of 30 analysts doing it and eventually finding it. Uh, yes, this is uh, the, the prompts, would, you know, literally in this case were uh, transparency and traceability, non-food industry, non-farming industry as well. And it looked and it found all these other sources. And Mary, I would just, because we've done so much work now in this area of, of creative prompting, the very simplest way that we've discovered to get really interesting prompts, it's really two things. One is to ask the who, what, where, when, how, why alternatives. Who else could do it? Why else would they do it? Where else could they do it? When else could they do it? Those kind of, of prompts for sure. And then the other piece of advice is don't be afraid to get more and more and more specific because you think the program's gonna blow up, but it doesn't. The answers get better and better and better. You say, well, how would that work in the, in the aerospace world? But specifically in rockets. Yeah, but tell me in how the rockets are manufactured. And you go deeper and deeper and deeper, and it will give you better and better uh, responses has been our experience. Alan, I think you had a build as well. No? Okay, yeah. So next month, I think I'll talk about prompts next month uh, in our curious quirky thing, because I think it could be valuable. Yep. Yeah, we ought to have you and Tim talk about prompts and mentoring and talk about so how the prompts are going to help the mentors uh, do even a better job by looking across. You know, we just did a big research project, took a whole year to do on on better ways of using digital learning or online learning. And, and uh, there were so many uh, things that we learned. One of the things we learned is that the prompt, good prompters are the future, good programmers are not. These AIs take away, and you'll start to see more and more ads for prompters than you will see for programmers, other than perhaps operating systems and core sort of programmers. Yeah, I definitely can add a story for that next next uh, month. I think that's a really good opportunity um, uh, to kind of bridge that together. Well, with that, I want to thank everyone for the in-depth round of thinking uh, and all the deep discussion topics and opinions. We wish you all the best. And however you decide to celebrate your upcoming Thanksgiving Day holiday, don't forget to take a moment and reflect on all the things you can be thankful for in all aspects of your life. Thanks for joining us here at Caltech. Curious and Quirky is a LinkedIn live event with course leaders from Caltech Executive Education. This is a fast-paced, five-minute-per-speaker, oh yeah, take on what's hot in marketing, innovation, transformation, future of work, platform strategy, design, and agility. Brought to you by the course leaders from Caltech Executive Education.